This is Mario Andretti, and you are listening to Below the Yellow Line. Everybody and welcome back to the Below the Align podcast. We have had a lot of guests on this show so far, but today's guest is the first one that I can confidently say I've looked up to a lot, whether it be his success on the war wagon or in the TV booth calling some of NASCAR's most legendary moments. Today's guest is one that most everybody has heard of. He's known as America's crew chief. He's kind of like I don't know, the George Washington of crew chiefs, if we want to call him that, <laughs> Mr. Larry McReynolds. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I, I don't know if that means that I'm just old or what the deal is being referenced to George Washington, but that's very flattering. Well, we appreciate all the work uh, that, that you've done and you're still active. Uh, I mean, obviously, you can see yourself on NASCAR Race Day and and Race Hub and, and all the Fox NASCAR coverage as well on SiriusXM NASCAR Radio with Daniel Trotta every morning. Um, but before you got into TV and, and radio and whatnot, you were a crew chief, a, a crew chief that won 23 races and had a lot of success. But how did your career on top of the pit box get started? Well, it's it's kind of an interesting, unique story. I'll just give you the treetop version. You know, I was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, had no racing background whatsoever. I was an only child. My mom and dad were divorced, but they had no interest whatsoever in any kind of automobile racing. Uh, but my grandfather, my mom's dad, and my aunt, my mom's sister, who was really more like a sister to me because she was the baby of the family. She was only 10 years older than I am. Uh, they were race fans. So from the time probably I was in, you know, middle school, every Friday night, the three of us would walk about a 15 minute walk down from my grandparents' house to the local short track and, and watch the races every Friday night. And then my aunt got married and her husband was a race fan and he was a mechanic as well. And so then the four of us, every Friday night, we'd go down and watch these races. And so I probably was a, like a sophomore in high school. It had to be somewhere maybe around 1975. They started a brand new division called a street stock copy division. It was as stock a race car as you could think about building. Maybe one page of rules. You took the windows out. You took the seats out put a few roll bars in it. You could do a little work to the suspension, a little bit to the engine, put a number on it, boom, you've got a race car. Well, my aunt, she was actually a little bit of a hot rodder. And she told her husband this first night that this division started, I think I could do that. Well, again, he was a mechanic and he said, uh, well, i tell you what, you go out and find some sponsors and we'll build you a race car. And so I'm sure being a female in a male sport, she went out and rounded up more sponsors and we almost had room on the car to put. And uh, so my racing career started in the basement of their house, building her street stock car. Um, I didn't know a three quarter wrench from a three quarter boat, but I worked hard to learn as fast as I could. And racing is a little bit like a disease. My aunt didn't have a lot of success, but I wanted to do something bigger. So I started working for uh, a late model racer there around Birmingham that, that the junkyard that I actually worked in 
sponsored. And a man by the name of Bobby Ray Jones owned it. And they had different drivers like Richard Orton, Dave Mater III, Mike Alexander that drove it. And we actually won a lot of races, a lot of big races. But I still wanted more. I, I wanted to figure out how to get to NASCAR. And I'd already graduated from high school. I was working at the salvage yard full time. And this would have been the summer of 1980. I was 21 years old and I got hurt at the junkyard. I, I walked into a, a, a fork of a forklift and kind of like centered my forehead, ha had a bunch of stitches, had a little bit of a concussion, and I had to stay home for a couple of weeks just trying to recover. And I was a member of NASCAR because some of the short tracks we ran, you had to be a member of NASCAR. And every month they would send out a NASCAR newsletter. And on the very back, there were classifieds. And again, I'm laying around the house. I'd read every magazine. I knew how to read. I, uh, I'd watched every soap opera there was to watch. And on the back side of this particular newsletter, on the classifieds, and it was people that was trying to sell race cars or trailers or buy engines, different things. But the last little ad said, brand new Winston Cup team starting in Greenville, South Carolina. It gave you a number to call, looking for mechanics and fabricators. And I went, ooh, so I'll give it a try. So I called and actually it was a lady I talked to. It was the daughter of the gentleman that was starting this team. His name was Bob Rogers in Greenville, South Carolina. And she actually knew who I was because they had been running a bunch of late model races and we had raced against them. So we talked for about 10 or 15 minutes. She took all my information down. And I figured I was one of about a million people that called this lady, figured I'll never hear back from her. About two weeks went by. I'm back working. I'm fairly healed up. Got home after getting off work, and my mom said, there's a lady from Greenville, South Carolina called you today. She said her number's in there by the phone. You know, we nobody had cell phones back then. So the next day I, I called and we chatted. And they said they were running a few limited races the end of 80 before going full-time at 81. And so we chatted and uh, she said, why don't you come to work for us for a few weeks? We'll see if we like you. You see if we like you like us. And then we'll go from there. So I went up there and worked for about two or three weeks. And they came to me and said, absolutely. We'd love for you to go to work for us full-time. And so I flew back home, hooked a U-Haul behind my 1971 green pinto when i say green i really mean green and loaded my stuff up in the u-haul my mom and dad looked at me and said this is the craziest thing we've ever heard or seen you'll be back in six months you'll be broke you'll be hungry we'll feed you but we're not going to bail you out of debt and i said you know you guys are probably right i always respect what y'all say but you know what i have to go try this and i'm proud to say 43 years later of course my mom and dad are deceased now but 43 years later, I'm still up here. I didn't go broke and I didn't go hungry. I think it worked out pretty well. And it, it's funny, the kind of inconspicuous beginnings. I mean, our sport obviously had probably the most inconspicuous beginnings of any major sports league that's still kicking today. But the, the stories of, of Richard Petty and, and, and yourself and so many other greats. I mean, I was, I was talking to Mario Andretti in an interview last, uh, last month and, he was talking about going around a, a little dirt track in Nazareth, Nazareth, Pennsylvania, and now he's widely regarded as one of the best all time. Just motorsports tends to lend itself to to opportunities like that, and 
it's when people like you make the best out of not a bad situation, but a situation that most people wouldn't think would lead to the success you had. That's those are the stories that that are inspiring. Those are the stories that you know they they make documentaries out of. So uh, your career obviously worked out uh, very well uh, from those humble beginnings. And one of the drivers that you got to work with is a driver and, and a person that that I admire very much, and that was Davy Allison. And um, most people know Davy's story. You, you and him both native sons of Alabama and and son of the legendary Bobby Allison. He grew into a legend in his own right, even in his uh, career that sadly got cut short. But 1992 is one of the best seasons in NASCAR history, one of his greatest seasons behind the wheel and yours on the pit box. But that wasn't an easy year for you guys. I mean, Davey got injured and, and, and there was just all sorts of things that happened. You're in the midst of a tight championship battle. Just what was it like working with him overall? And especially that year where he showed, I mean, as much perseverance as I've ever seen a professional athlete show in just one season. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people linked Davey and I together because of both being from the Birmingham, Alabama area. Uh, but I never really got to know Davey around Birmingham because about the time he started doing some late model racing around Birmingham and the Southeast, I had already moved on to the Carolinas and become a part of NASCAR. I knew Donnie, his uncle, Bobby's brother. I knew of Bobby, but I really didn't know them that well. But when I joined there in 1991, uh, Robert Yates racing that that was a career making move for me it, it put Larry McReynolds on the NASCAR map you know I didn't join him till race number five we won five races we won the all-star race that year and I think Davey ended up like third in the points so we couldn't wait to get 1992 started and lo and behold we came out of the the, the block winning the Daytona 500 but yeah I think Samuel if you look at the entire history of NASCAR, you'd be hard pressed to find a driver in a team that had so many highs and so many lows in one single season. Because it was, we, we won five races, including the Daytona 500. We dominated the all-star race for the second year in a row. We were leading the points headed into the final race of the year in Atlanta, ended up getting caught up in a wreck and ended up finishing third to Alan Quickie and Bill Elliott. But just the other things that happened that year, you know, we went through a period of time in the spring and early summer where we were winning one week, wrecking one week, winning one week, wrecking one week. And then one week we figured out how to do both in the same night at the all-star race where we won, but that was the wreck with Kyle Petty at the checkered flag. Davey lost his grandfather in the spring that year. Uh, and he and his grandfather, Pop Allison, they were very, very close. Uh, Davey busted up some ribs at a, at a wreck in Bristol in the early part of the season. And actually, the next week, we won North Wilkesboro. But Davey barely practiced the car. Jimmy Hensley sat in force just trying to give Davey as much healing time as possible. We had to start at the rear of the field because Jimmy qualified the car. And, and went on to win the race. The wreck at Pocono, that was probably the turning point of our season. I know a lot of people say we lost the championship at Atlanta when we got caught up in that wreck, but in my book, we lost it at Pocono in July because after that, Davey had to have surgery. We spent the next six to eight weeks just trying to get him comfortable in the car. 
it wasn't as much about how we're running or, or how the car's driving. It's just making him comfortable. So I felt like we lost the championship at Pocono. His brother Clifford was killed in an Xfinity Series accident in Michigan. There has never been, in my book, a driver and a team that went through so much. Again, a lot of highs, a lot of wins, a lot of success. But, man, the lowest of lows, including especially losing his grandfather and then his, his brother being killed at Michigan. That was a year unlike any other for the sport and and for you guys. Um, and, you know, you talk about the highs and lows and, you know, there's just the difference between those. And I know in a lot of like game sevens in NBA and the MLB, you see the commentators say that the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. And it, like you mentioned, it seemed like you guys were going through those cycles every single week. I mean, even in races, you know, where, where you spin and win or you have an issue early and you come back to win um, that year, it was kind of an anomaly. It was, it was just the weirdest year, but it was still a good year for you guys. But then, um, ultimately losing the championship, I know had to sting, but still that's your, I mean, in, incredibly proud of, I know a lot of people were a lot of very proud of you and Davey and the resilience that, that he and the team showed is something I, I don't think we'll ever see again. I'm not sure anybody in modern NASCAR could ever truly replicate, um, just the, the incredible person, the incredible character. And just the, if Superman's the man of steel, he must've gotten his genetics from Davey Allison because he was about yeah. the toughest. Seen. No, nobody any tougher, more determined individual that I'd ever met in my 64 plus years of living than Davey Allison. Uh, he really was a role model for the race team, you know, because I remember Samuel when we found out on Thursday, Davey was already in Michigan and we were flying up when Clifford got killed on Thursday around lunchtime. And we finally got in touch with Davey Thursday night once we got to the hotel. And Robert and I got on the phone with him and said, what, what do you want us to do this weekend? Do you want us to maybe get Jim Sauter to come run the car? Do you want to get him to practice, qualify? What, 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 what do you want? And he stopped us dead in our tracks. He said, let me tell you something. Yeah, my brother was killed today, and I've got a hole in me that burns when the wind blows. But you know what? I'm here to do a job, and I'm going to do my job. And we're going to win this race on Sunday, and then we'll go back to Hueytown and we'll bury my brother the first of the week. And I can't imagine. The next day, he had to drive through that very corner that his brother had just been killed in around 24 hours prior. I, I don't even how somebody can be that mentally tough, but that's classic Davey Allison. It sure is. And the next guy um, that, that I want to talk about a little bit certainly was, was tough as well. And obviously, most people know you uh, for your time with, with Davey and, and Dale Earnhardt as well. And you were with Dale and you were with Davey for his Daytona 500 win. Um, but you were with Dale Earnhardt for his 1998 Daytona 500 win. And that is looked back on as one of, if not the greatest moments in NASCAR history. Just well, I mean, it had to have meant a lot to you to win your second, but everybody talks about Dale. Just what were the emotions of, of that team and that day when Dale finally won his Daytona 500? Well, you know, I joined the three car in, in Dale and Richard Childress racing the beginning of 97. And, you know, I knew how bad he really wanted to win that race. I mean, the man had won 30 something races at Daytona. He'd won everything from 
from IROC to the Xfinity Series to the Duel to the Clash to the July race. He just never had sealed the deal with the 500. And I even go back to the 97 500. We had had a very up and down day. Uh, car didn't drive as good as it should have. Our pit crew wasn't hitting on all cylinders. But lo and behold, with Dale Earnhardt behind the wheel, we found our way to the front was leading with 20 laps to go. And I remember looking at Richard Childress with about 18 to go. And I said, what do you think, boss? He shook his head. He said, been here way too many times. And with about 12 to go, I knew what he was talking about because we were barrel rolling down the back straightaway. And that's when he got out of the car and got back in it and drove it around. And we went ahead and finished the race. But 97, that was a tough year. It was very tough on me. We never won a race. And, and I was just so down and out because I felt like if I could carry everything that I had accomplished at Robert Yates Racing with that 28 car and take it to one of the greatest race car drivers that ever gripped the steering wheel of a cup car, it wasn't a, a question of if we could get him his eighth championship, but how many more championships we could win. We went winless in 97. So to go there in, in 1998, and I knew throughout all the winter, the testing, that this car was really good. It drove good. It had good speed. And uh, to finally seal the deal, uh, yeah, it meant the world to me to get my second with two different drivers, with two different organizations. But I knew how bad Dale wanted it. And I, I remember Samuel being in victory lane. And it was such a surreal moment. It's a moment I'll never, ever forget. Things had kind of settled down a little bit. We'd been in victory lane for quite a while. And I remember just kind of, they were still taking pictures and everything, but I remember taking just a, a step back and just kind of taking it all in. And to watch Dale and Teresa Earnhardt, knowing how many years he had tried, as Mike Joyce said, 20 years of trying, 20 years of frustration. And then also watching Richard and Judy Childers. Think about how many years they'd been there trying to win it. Remember, Richard was a driver before he became an owner, so he'd probably been trying for 30-something years. It all Just watching them, the, the, the joy and excitement reminded me of when my kids were really small, watching them open packages on Christmas morning. That, that, that's the excitement and how much they were enjoying that. That, that right there meant the world to me just watching how much it meant to them well i think anybody would be excited to win the daytona 500 but especially when it's the sport's biggest prize it's it's been right there in front of you for 19 years i mean 19 i think 90 it was blowing that tire and seeing it all fade away as Derek cope drives into the sunset um i mean in his rookie year he led laps in that race i, I think yeah. Remember if it was 85 that Jeff Bodine passed him on the final pit stop. And then 97, like you mentioned, there was just so many times. And I remember I love watching that race back every February as we get closer to the start of the season. CBS had a lap counter that day of these are the lap numbers that Dale hadn't led. And I think yeah. it was lap two, lap 20, lap 184, 193, and obviously very 200. Few. Very few. Very few. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was just so good at Daytona, so good at Talladega. Everybody says he could see the air and whatnot, and he'd probably dominate at New Atlanta nowadays too. But the Daytona 500 was that one race he could never get, and he finally got it. And, I mean, I'm sure he wanted to win an eighth championship. I'm sure he wanted to to pass the likes of Petty and eventually Jimmy Johnson. But 
winning that Daytona 500 was kind of the last feather in the cap that he needed. And as an added bonus for you, it kind of solidified your legacy as one of the best of all time. I and mean, how many crew chiefs win one Daytona 500, let alone two, with two different drivers? I mean, that's certainly uh, an accomplishment for both of you. Um, and after you won two Daytona 500s, I guess I guess you got tired of winning so much because you decided to move up to the TV booth and work with two legends in their own right. Daryl Waltrip, a legend on the racetrack, and Mike Joy, who's a legend in the broadcast booth and actually called that 1998 Daytona 500 for CBS. What was it like moving from, from the pit box to the TV booth? Maybe a little less busy, but what was it like as well getting to work with two legends of the industry? Yeah, I mean, I, I never worked with Daryl in any kind of racing form. We, we, we never worked together. Uh, I knew Mike. And, you know, from 1995 through 2000, periodically I would do an Xfinity Series race in the broadcast booth, a truck race, maybe on a Saturday uh, before the day of the cup race, maybe on an off weekend, which we had a lot more off weekends back in. Actually, at Phoenix, uh, I think it might have been uh, 1999, may have been 2000, Mike and Daryl and I actually did an Xfinity Series race. Daryl was still driving. I was still a crew chief. And they had Daryl and I do it as a guest. But I, I never saw myself doing anything in the sport but being a crew chief. I, I figured when they put me six feet under, I'd still be saying four tires next stop. Uh, it was the hardest decision I ever had to make. Uh, something my wife and I and even my two oldest kids, I, I, I wanted them to be a part of this decision. Um, there was two or three reasons I finally made the decision to do it. You know, they offered me the deal in the spring of 2000, spinning ahead for 2001, which when the Fox deal was going to start. And I still, by July, early August, I had not made my, my mind up. And they were calling now saying, look, we, we need an answer. And so I still had to talk to Richard Childress because I still had a couple of years left on my contract with him. But at the end of the day, it was not like it was a lot more money. In fact, it was the same amount of money, which honestly, Samuel, I was glad of that. That let me lay that aside and make the decision based on what's best for me and what's best for the future of my family. The reasons I ended up doing it, I felt like that if I didn't at least try it, I'd always second guess, wonder what it had been like. And I knew I may never get another shot at it because it was going to be a very small group of people that was going to do this. And then the other thing, they were offering me a two-year deal. And at the end of two years, if I didn't like them, maybe they didn't like me, I could always go back to being a crew chief. But I was, I've got to say, uh, it's a decision I made uh, that I've never looked back on. And, you know, most people go through life and they don't really have, I think, one fulfilling career. And to sit here today, and I'll be 65 in January, and I've been in the sport 43 years, I barely, and I mean barely, have a high school diploma, barely. To know now that I've had two very fulfilling careers in the sport of NASCAR, trust me, I pinch myself every single day. But to do it with Mike and Daryl, we became, it, it didn't take long to realize the chemistry was there. I think we knew it before we ever left Daytona in February of 2001. 
it almost reminded me of some of my better relationships with drivers that I worked with, like Davey Allison, like Ernie Irvin. I think it didn't take long that Mike and Daryl and I, we got to the point we could finish each other's sentences. We knew what each other was thinking. And to know we were together, what we were teammates for 19 years until Daryl retired, but we were together in that broadcast booth for 15 years. That's almost unprecedented. You don't even, you just don't hear that, see that with a broadcast team. And I, 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 I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a boastful guy, but I feel like those 15 years, Mike and Daryl and I set the bar and basically y'all have at it. See if you can top it. Absolutely. And I, I feel like you guys did that for me and a, a whole other generation, especially my generation of fans. I was born in 2006. I kind of got into the sport towards the end of y'all's tenure together. Um, but one of the feelings that just makes me so happy is always hearing Chris Myers at the end of the Fox pre-race show saying, all right, let's throw it up to Larry, uh, sorry, Larry, Daryl and Mike, because <laughs> it meant I was going to hear you guys and it meant the race was about to go green. And that was always, that was always special. You guys certainly made a, a great team and I'm glad you're still in that world. It's glad you're still helping out uh, with their programs, with races and, and on uh, Sirius XM radio. And I, I do want to thank you. And, you know, I, I hope I get the chance to say that to the other two men of that great trio um, for, you know, bringing the sport to, to me and to, to millions of others around the world. Um, and it, it does certainly mean a lot. And I also really want to thank you for joining us today. You got to crew chief some of my favorite drivers of all time. And, and you yourself are a legend in your own right. And um, thank you so much for coming on today. No, I, I really appreciate you having me and uh, enjoyed chatting with you. I always enjoy sharing with the fans and, and with different people, you know, my story, my journey, things that I, that's the highs and lows of this career, because there's definitely been plenty of lows. There's been a lot of highs to win 23 races, two Daytona 500. I feel very blessed and very fortunate. And, uh, you know, I always like closing things out like this. I do a lot of keynote speeches and I always close the keynote speech out. I know there's a lot of people out there that, that do not believe that dreams can come true. But if you don't believe dreams come true, you just listen to a guy for the last 15, 20, 25 minutes that is walking living proof that if you believe in something, you're committed, you're dedicated, you're focused, you have that never give up attitude. Trust me, I'm walking living proof that dreams absolutely do come true. Well, I got to give it to you. Out of all the guests that we've had on so far, you are by far the most inspiring. <laughs> well, I appreciate if you ever, that. If you ever want a, a third very fulfilling career as a as a someone, I don't know what you call them, a, a TED talker, I guess, I think you could probably <laughs> make it work. But thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you. Take care. One, two, one, two, three, four. This is Mario Andretti, and you are listening to Below the Yellow Line.